0: Kia ora koutou. welcome back to Aotearoa Unearthed, a podcast about New Zealand archaeology. This episode is being released in honour of Archaeology Week 2023. My name's Rosemary, I'm your host and I work for Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga. Not an archaeologist, but always very interested to learn more. This is an episode I've been wanting to record for ages. It's the story of the partnership between the archaeologists, Te Runanga o Kai Koura, and the construction workers on the massive road and rail repair project that came after the Kaikoura earthquake of 2016. For this episode, I talked to Darren Kepa, the lead cultural monitor, and Dr Jeremy Haberfield-Short, who was the director of archaeology for most of the project. We were actually able to do this interview in person, which was so much fun, and I really appreciated Darren and Jeremy's patience with my sometimes quite stupid questions, but also their enthusiasm to share the story and to reflect on what made it work so well. Before we began our conversation, Darren opened for us with a karakia.
1: Kia ora koutou, la mihi o nga koutou katoa, nau mai, nau mai, puki mai. E karakia tēnei, ke a wātea te wairua, ke a te tīnana, ke a te hinginaro.
0: Nā mihi, Darren. Thank you so much for that karakia to start us off. Jeremy, I'm wondering if you could just set the context of the NCTIR project. How and why was it necessary? Kia
2: ora, Rosemary. So just past midnight on the 14th of November 2016, a catastrophic 7.8-magnitude earthquake struck 60 kilometres southwest of the coastal town of Kokoda. As 20 fault lines ruptured in the area, thousands of landslides dumped down onto the transport corridor, instantly isolating the community and bringing travel and critical commercial freight to a dead halt. And so after a period of assessing what happened, nectar came up with quite a large scope of around about 3,500 items or assets within that network that needed fixing. Waka Kotahi, New Zealand Transport Agency and KiwiRail came together as a joint alliance and together with Fulton Hogan and Downers created the North Canterbury Transit Infrastructure Recovery Programme to lead those works. So that project was formed in late 2016 and initially was only meant to run for nine months to cover the recovery project and then was expanded to include resilience packages to make the road more safe and to safeguard against future events, and then some packages that were around safe stopping areas for public to be able to pull off the highway safely and enjoy the beautiful scenery. The Nectar Archaeology Project ran in conjunction with the construction project in those areas.
0: And how long were you both working on the project?
2: It depends what you mean as a... You mean
1: actually on the project or the aftermath, in and, and Jeremy's case, reports and still
2: ongoing? And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the on-the-ground mahi ran from 2017 through to April 2021. And then that initially was meant to be for nine months. I was told and I was thinking <laughs> to myself, oh yeah, nine months, that's all right. And then four years later, we were still living there and it was like, it had become almost a movement of your whole entire life to Kaukata. It mm. was quite an amazing sea change, I guess, in some respects, yeah. yeah.
0: So how did both of you get involved, Darren? Maybe you could start.
1: Kia Rosemary. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the question. I got involved in the project uh, about four months after the November earthquake. I got asked to come back and lead the monitoring. The monitoring had already started. And because of the history of cultural monitoring in Kaikota, as soon as the earthquake struck, we had the resources and we were on the ground very quickly because we knew we had a rich... Coastal margin, and we knew that the archaeology would be affected by the earthquake, so we knew that we had to be involved and we made sure that we were engaged at the very start.
0: Can you tell me a bit more, Darren, about the rich history of the Kaikoura coastal region?
1: It's a rich history of occupation over the last 20 odd years. There's been a lot of development in the township itself, and because of the long period of occupation up to six to seven, eight hundred years and the nature of the environment every time you dug and every time you still dig properties in Kaikōta, you come across archaeology.
0: And I know some of our listeners won't even know what cultural monitoring is, can you explain?
1: What cultural monitor does is basically has oversight when um, contractors are working in an area and make sure that the cultural integrity and the spiritual integrity is maintained. That involves karakia and involves actually getting down and doing the work with the archaeologists. Some people may view cultural monitoring as just purely observing but in Kaikoura we don't. We have our own kit with us and we get down there and we do the archaeology as well which on the project worked very well. But first and foremost it is to maintain the integrity of cultural elements.
0: And Jeremy, how did you get involved?
2: It was initially through a conversation with a colleague who worked for a larger consultancy firm in about January 2017. And so I came on as a field hand when it was being managed by another archaeologist, Nick Cable. And then over the duration of the project, as it evolved, I stepped into being the local lead of the project myself and took on the Section 45 responsibilities.
0: So I know this was a really large archaeological project. I think you told me earlier you had over 40 archaeologists on the team plus the cultural monitoring team. So why was it just such a big project?
2: Primarily because of the scope i think it covered something like 180 kilometers of rail and road infrastructure following the coastline where there were massive amounts of archaeology when we started on the project i think there was about 190 archaeological sites and heritage sites that we were responsible for managing and over the duration of the project we finished up with around about 223 sites so we discovered a few new sites in the process of the works the length of the project we couldn't have one archaeologist covering all of that distance, so we had to divide it up into zones and have leads that were responsible for managing each zone. In some cases we had works which were running concurrently for three years in a really dense archaeological landscape, and so we had to bring on more members onto our team. And some of those would be dedicated purely just to doing the investigative works, whilst others were monitoring or liaising with construction teams around the rest of the project. And then, in addition to that, we were also running our lab work. So we had developed a lab at the Nectar Facilities in Kaikoura. This was led by Jean Spinks, and we had a dedicated team involved with processing our field samples as they came in, archiving them, doing the cleaning, and the analysis of fishbone and taonga and that kind of thing, with the intention of having most of the lab work finished by the time the project closed out.
0: And what about your team? Was it just you, Darren, or did you have other cultural monitors?
2: There were
1: two of us. We had a few people that came and helped out. But the team as such, we had myself and my brother, and we swapped in an outer case because we took breaks or had to go and do other mahi or went on holiday. But we also had other members of the runanga that would come out and their job was karakia. So they were the kai karakia. We had two of those. But also they were quite interested in archaeology and if need be, we'd call on them to do the work as well. But just the way that Jeremy structured it, It was a stretch but we were able to manage it because we were working in specific areas and the other areas that the archaeologists were working, if there was anything that happened that I was required to go there then I'd simply down tools and drive to the other end of the township or the other end of the coast. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of driving involved.
0: And what skills and knowledge does a cultural monitor need?
1: Yeah, so this is a good question because you need to look at some of the korero that has passed on and there were areas that we knew about that are not registered with Heritage New Zealand and they're not known about by other archaeologists, given that archaeology in the Kaikōta region has been happening for many, many years, way back into the 1960s. But there were still a lot of sites that we knew existed. And it was nobody else's business but because of the nature of the earthquake and because it was recovery and then resilience work we knew they were going into areas that had never been gone into before so that was really important that we were part of that and not only part of that as in reacting to it but also trying to manage how not to go into an area or how to deal with an area once you were in it. There were parts of the northern part of Kaikō that had been very badly affected and we knew how much was in there and it got to a point where we thought right we're just not digging it up again because we are still disturbing the wairua of the region and sometimes in big projects like that you'll go back and dig something up because somebody forgot to put a pipe in and it got to a point where we said enough's enough to stop disturbing it and so we changed it and some of the work that Jeremy did about re-looking it, at how the road could be reconstructed there are opportunities here where we could raise the road so we didn't interfere with the archaeology. We changed things because we just had enough of the funeral being disturbed.
0: And Darren, I'm wondering now if you'd be able to talk about a very interesting project the team undertook to shift an urupa, which is a burial site.
1: I'm happy to talk about that. I need to be a little bit careful yeah. because of the sensitivities around that, being an urupa. But quite simply, because of the nature of the road network and the railway network in New Zealand, Because we were coastal people, the road and the rail goes around the coast. So of course it's going to go straight through significant sites. And Kaikota is no different. The main road goes right over in Utapa. And it has been a troubling thing for us for many years, since late 1930s when the road went through. And so it was a difficult decision to make because we wanted to leave our tupuna undisturbed. But at the same time, ironically, people were driving over the Utapa every day. And so there came an opportunity where we actually had to move the road and the rail over a little bit because of the hillside slip, do some prevention work there. And we took it to the runanga, to the whānau, and said, we've got an opportunity to move our tūpuna so they're no longer underneath the road. And it was a hard decision to make. Without going to numbers, we uplifted a whole udapa, relocated them to a site where they wouldn't be disturbed in the future. And it was a good result in the end, but a difficult decision to make.
0: How did the archaeologists deal with working in that very serious and spiritually, how would you describe it Darren, not dangerous but kind of sensitive?
1: Yeah I would probably use a stronger word than sensitive. It was a significant site. To accidentally come across a burial is one thing, to knowingly go into an urupa and lift it up is another. There was the expectation that there were going to be a lot of people in here, which was the case, there was the expectation that there would be a range of children and adults, which was the case. It was just a completely different feeling when we were working on the site. And we had to make the acknowledgement. When we were digging, we were digging back into that history and therefore we were digging back into the time of tapu where people's lives were quite different and coming from a stronger spiritual sense. And I had to acknowledge that in myself and I had to make sure that when we had our karakia, that our kai karakia was giving thought to that when he was saying his karakia, he was taking those considerations because part of the cultural monitor's role is to protect as well as work with the archaeologists and protect not only the archaeologists but the digger drivers, the people doing the roadworks, stop and go. There's got to be a better word for the stop and go. Yeah. Traffic management. <laughs> <laughs> Protecting the people doing the traffic management. And so we took it very seriously. We learnt a lot out of it because I could actually see that it was affecting individuals. And so we were very aware of that. And we also made it known to the health and safety team in the nectar environment that we were working in at Urupa. And they needed to give that consideration. And the other thing that was really important, we made it clear to the archaeologists, if you didn't want to work in this space, that's okay. Jeremy, in his role, can
2: move you to another part of it.
0: Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask from the archaeologist's perspective. So how was it for them? Because it might have been a new experience.
2: I know that at that time it was around the mosque shooting here in Christchurch, And so there were elevated levels of emotion and anxiety and that kind of thing. And that particular part of the project was a highly sensitive time for everybody. And I think that the merits that came out of it was the way that the team pulled together and worked within that space. And I was really proud of how the team really integrated within the kaupapa and Darren's leadership. We had employed a skeletal anthropologist from Otago University who led the uncovery and the recording of the koiwi. Rachel was really respectful and acknowledging cultural tikanga around how to record. We had an agreement in place with Heritage New Zealand and with the Runanga around the levels of recording that would be undertaken so that they weren't too invasive and disrespectful of tikanga around koiwi and the team were really on board with that it was not just about archaeology for them there was also that huge cultural element i don't think it was necessarily anything new to them in terms of working around tekanga but it certainly i think it was a whole different level i've always said that what we do as heritage managers is kind of a little bit cut and dried but being integrated into a program with a huge maturanga maori focus really contextualized the archaeology for us and made it kind of come alive and it has that whole human dimension to it which sometimes it lacks Very early on, basically a year into the project, we came up with our own values as our tikanga commitment. We agreed on a set of four values around how we would practice as archaeologists and that was guided very much with Darren's input. Created a space in which the lab would operate and also how we would undertake our work as archaeologists, how we would treat each other. So it was really quite unique and (laughs) exciting.
1: I think Uh, where we've gone in the conversation it takes us back to some of the first questions we were asked about the years of experience in cultural monitoring in the Kaikōta region. We knew what we were doing Mm. and so we put things in place straight away and told the archaeologists that this is how this is going to work, where we place containers along the coastline to put Iwi in, so it wasn't leaving the area that it was from until it was time to leave the area. We didn't transport koiwi or taonga But We had some really strict guidelines around what we did, and because we had the structure already in place and we, were, we knew what we were doing and we knew that it worked, when new archaeologists would come in, they'd say, okay, this is how they do it. I have to give credit to Jeremy that we had conversations early on in the piece about what archaeologists would come onto the team. I won't get into that, but he was really careful on who he chose. Uh And so we had a mix of younger archaeologists and senior archaeologists, and it just seemed through the selection process, everybody worked really well together. When you're in an intense situation like uplifting an Urupa, that's key, because if Mm. it's going to unravel and people are going to get frayed or tempers or emotions are going to be elevated, that's when it's going to happen. So that was a good selection process on Jeremy's part.
0: I know there was also so many other types of archaeology that the team came across, so I'm wondering, Jeremy, if you can tell me about some of the other types of sites and findings that you had.
2: Part of the nectar management tool that we had was um, on-call procedure, which basically meant that if a contractor was out where there was minimal risk for in-situ archaeology, they would stop work, isolate the find, and then call in to our lead archaeologist who would go out and inspect it. One of those instances was up the Erie River. A digger operator was working in the river channel there, clearing debris, so they were doing a little bit of floodbank bank mitigation works and pulled out of the river a plough. And so I shot up, I'm not a historic archaeologist, however we made good use of the local museum and put a comms out and Nick Cable was able to figure out that it was a plough from a particular time. Other projects which were the south of Kaikota, included whaling sites. There was one particular whaling site south of Picata. Kim Bowne, who was our historic archaeologist led an investigation on. It was a particular area where Nectar was aiming to form a pullover area and we knew that there was a former whaling station in that particular location but we didn't know where so we undertook a limited test pit investigation to try and locate any in situ deposits. Kim was able to show that they occurred 1.2 metres below the actual road surface and weren't going to be impacted by the Nectar works and so we were able to use that information to inform the development of signage around that area, and Nectar ended up designing a little bit of a pullover with billboards and that kind of thing. We also had some other isolated discoveries. One included a bottle dump on the main road into Kaikoura, adjacent to the racecourse. It was just a random occurrence, nothing else there. (laughs) And let me think, some remarkable discoveries. I will never forget. We were, I think, 3.5 metres below the road north of Waipapa Point, as Nectar was forming the foundation works for a coalwit right adjacent to the foreshore, and at 3.5 metres below the road, they found this hugely thick and dense midden layer. That was amazing, so deep, and it turned out to be particularly interesting as well.
1: I think the hearth that we found Mm. was also a really interesting find. We found the hearth, and that was also quite deep, and I decided that we would actually remove the hearth so I built a box and then I cut around the hearth and I actually managed to lift the whole hearth out and put it into a box and now it sits within the wharitau. Oh. If you look at a cross section of the hearth you can see the different layers of fires. But what was interesting about the hearth that once we lifted it up, underneath the hearth was another hearth, oh, wow. which hmm. had sand blown over it. Somebody had been there, used a the hearth, but then those people had left for a while but then either the same people or other people came back, because of the environment, built a hearth directly yeah. on top of that one. Mm. And the interesting thing about the hearth, they used a type of mudstone and they had to walk to the beach and find it, bring it back. Mm. It was a square hearth. Yeah. And we managed to get it up just about intact, yeah. the whole thing. It was a mission. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really exciting.
2: Yeah, we have a couple of the rectangular hearths spanning the whole wipe Waipapa Point region. They're really interesting little slices of time. Not perfectly preserved, but they were preserved well enough that you could pick up activity areas around the hearth where the tūpuna had been sitting and working resharpening stone tools. And you could see where they had cached some chert core material and they had flaked it. Some of the post holes, there would have been a U-shaped cloche around the hearth. Depending on the number of people living there, I think they made good use of temporary structures, but with a semi-permanent fireplace. So we found about five or six of these Particular activity zones and could literally see where Tupuna was sitting and working making fishhook tools. Later day activities, yeah, such as bird spears and that kind of thing, or where they were processing Kaimauana. So we'd often find little caches of power around the outside of the fireplace. And in many instances, they had been sealed by hillslides, in particular at a Point. And it's, there was a really interesting parallel between why we were there and events that were perhaps linked to previous episodes of either tectonic activity or mm. from hillside instability mm. from flooding. And in two examples, you could see where a colluvium had come off the hillside and completely capped a living area and effectively sealed it as a moment in time. Uh, that was New amazing.
0: Zealand's Pompeii. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a stretch, but yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was really cool because the mud, you could peel it off And it just left this beautiful intact surface amazing yeah
0: did you feel like what you were finding was adding more to your knowledge of how your ancestors lived
1: it's a question that's often asked in regards to the relationship between maori and archaeology and it's best answered by we know our history we have our kōrero that's been passed on we know where specific people were we know what happened and events and all the archaeology is, is if we were ever to be questioned on it, we'd go, well, here's the archaeology to prove it. We can prove to you that in this period of time, these people occupied this area and they ate this, this and this and this.
0: That's cool. I wonder if people think of archaeology as discovery, but in this case, it's confirmation. It's, yeah. 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 So I would like to ask a bit more about Kotahi. How was your relationship with them? How did they view the archaeology and the cultural monitoring?
2: So, Waka Kotahi, one of the core values of Waka Kotahi is, is that they support and encourage the protection and management of heritage nationally. Waka Kotahi is a set of guidelines around how construction projects should manage heritage. And so, the project planner, who was Richard Shaw, was the interface between Waka Kotahi and Nectar, along with Heritage New Zealand and Runanga. I guess the commitment from Waka Kotahi's perspective is that it has a commitment to the communities that it operates in how it does its activities has very much got to mirror the community and the community values.
0: But did it change? Because you were there several years.
2: Yes it did. In the beginning it was about recovery and reopening the road. It was fast-paced and whilst the conditions of the Archaeological Authority that we had not changed and there were set processes and procedures within the Authority, often I felt that we were literally knee-jerk responses (laughs) because often projects would just happen and occur. And there was retrospective planning going on where things would get built and then they would get designed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Sometimes the works would have to be redone. But it often meant that we didn't have a lot of advanced notification in terms of field responses and didn't have anything forward in terms of planning. And the juncture came at a year into the project. Once the road and the rail was reopened, reconnected, we then went into what was called the Resilience and Enhancement Package, which was basically Nectar spent about six months developing a suite of projects which were fully scoped and designed ahead of time. And so at that stage, we were able to have input into how the projects would look. And in those areas where we knew there was both archeological and wahitapu significance, we were able to effectively alter the design. Sometimes that meant going out and doing a little bit of testing to see where archeology span was in relation to the proposed works and in other instances we were able to either elevate the designs so the actual works themselves avoided archaeology and then as we had archaeologists on site if they were encountering archaeology we were able to undertake limited design changes and so that might have been moving sumps for drainage pits or reducing the amount of surface area for a car park and that was probably the really proactive part of the project that we really got to impact on. Retention of heritage value, because you know archaeology is not just about mitigation for mitigation's sake. It's primarily we're about managing the heritage resource Mm. and Mm. avoiding in the first Mm. instance. And that's something that Waka Kotahi really, really gets behind: is how do we avoid sites? Let's do the mitigation as an end result, for only if we can rule out the possibility that we can't avoid a site. Darren might have slightly (laughs) different views. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I do have slightly different views, but the thing about it was. The archaeology and everything that took place was because of an event. Mm. It was because of the earthquake. And we had to basically, first and foremost, get the road open. And so a lot of things could have been done better, but it was just the fact that we've got to get that road open. It's the main road. But Jeremy's right in the fact that we could actually step back a little bit and take a breath because the road was open, albeit a hard road to travel. But. <laughs> 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 it's a good joke. Put that in there. Um, and then we had a chance to have a look at some of the recovery and some of the design work. And that's where Nectar engaged with the runanga. And we wanted for the coastline to remain what we were used to. A place where we live now and a place where our tupuna lived and where they fished and where we fished. And where we accessed the beach and where they accessed the beach. And of course, you had influences coming from road safety and that where they were looking to make changes to the coastline. We said, no, hold on a minute. We just want to push back a little bit. Let's look at the environment and look at some changes that we can make rather than instal a protection mechanism maybe we could bring through revetment work the beach to the edge of the road. And they were really happy to engage with us and I'll give credit to our office and natural resources manager. So that was a really good way that Iwi, in this case the Runanga, could work with nectar. And we just slowed down some of how they wanted the design to be and then it became how all of us wanted the design to be. I think that's really important that that took place because that engagement will now go through the rest of the country because I would like to think that when other crown agencies in roading or in rail work with Māori, they go through that process of proper engagement mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. And, and say, let's look at design, let's look at the natural environment, stop so sticking things in the way.
0: It's mm, pretty amazing. For our show and tell section, we're going to have a photo of this artefact box. This is also about you, Darren, educating the individual workers. On the site, as you said, it's lots of construction, digger, dump truck traffic management individuals, so can you tell me about how you use this artefact box and what you were doing with it?
1: Because Te Riranga or o is a registered holder of artefacts, we had a few and I thought the best thing to do to educate and to get what ended up being called a thousand eyes, to get everybody to have a look and maybe if they see something that's out of context to where they're working or something that's an unusual shape or whatever, The idea was to just engage them, so Jeremy and I spent months and months every morning at 6.30, sometimes earlier, going to the startup meetings in the morning, the health and safety meetings and the briefings for the day and we would give presentations and talk about archaeology and we had the show and tell box. We had different variety of ads with either pounamu or argillite, we had some fragments of mower bone, we had some hammer stones, some sinkers, some flakes. You know, 101, archaeology, this is what you might find. And it worked really well because most people like archaeology. <laughs> mm. And it worked. Mm. We had significant pieces that we missed because we were moving millions of tonnes of mm. material. In the end, we had truck drivers, when they were dumping, they were watching what was coming off the back of the truck. And we had three or four significant mm. finds of ads and work pounamu people picked up and handed into us. We had some presentations as part of it Mm. and we acknowledged people's work and the fact that they had given us back some significant pieces and we actually certificated a few people in their mahi.
2: So in the first year we had 9,000 people on the project. So you can imagine, as Darren was saying, literally almost full-time driving from one end of the coastline to the other having conversations (laughs) around (laughs) heritage. We were all very, very busy. Most of the time it was literally just getting out and talking to people. Yeah, it was really important.
1: So one of the things that happened around educating people, we made it very clear to everybody, it doesn't matter what it is, if you think it's suspicious, give us a ring. So again, there's a reason why we mm. had so many archeologists. We had people driving two different, oh, we've mm. found this, we've found that. And that was weekly, we'd be going somewhere. And that was any discovery of bone material, we'd go and have a look. Mm. And false alarms didn't bother us because people were engaging and we were really appreciative of that. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of sheep, we had a lot of pigs, a little bit of KFC. uh, That's right, yes. A little bit of KFC, and of course you'd rock up there thinking, oh, okay, where are they? And you'd know, they're on that edge sort of between the road and the rail, and that's very unlikely because it's all the rail ballast. Mm -hmm. And you look down, you pick up and go, chicken, KFC, six months ago. (laughs) And they weren't embarrassed because we'd be grateful. We'd thank them, thank you very much, good thinking.
0: Did you see a change in people's attitudes over time?
1: Definitely. Mm. There were specific reasons for that. And one is the early morning inductions. That was good. That was getting people engaged. There was a lot of locals on it. And locals, Māori or non-Māori, were protective of their coastline and they were talking to other digger drivers that had come in. So there was that relationship forming. And really importantly, just about every employee went through the marae and Mm. was engaged and invited to the marae for a kai and a quarter about the marae and about the history of the coastline. Again, I'll give credit here to Nectar and to the uh, upper management. That was really important to them to get as many people through. Actually, that coming into the marae, Mm. when they went back out to work, there were things like, wow, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be, going to a marae. And made a difference to the wider of the working environment and it made a difference to individuals and how they felt about the cultural significance of the region, but also about the archaeology and what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And when we rocked up there was a good rapport between us and the digger drivers and us and the truck drivers and mm-hmm. us and the those people again. Stop go. Traffic management. Traffic management. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, Nectar really supported heritage management and cultural heritage management. It was something that was part and parcel of the wider values of the organisation. And it wasn't just lip service. So it meant that we weren't operating as a fallback kind of scenario. We felt that we were a valued part of the wider Nectar project. That level of support showed the rest of the Nectar team. On projects, you often get an uncomfortable position between the archaeology and the project construction team. And their aim is to get a project finished as quickly as possible to cost and under cost and within a tight time frames. And they have a real suspicious view of archaeology because everyone says that we cause downtime and cost to project. That is true, but we also want to work to allow works to proceed. And a core part of our work was looking at if we make a discovery or a find during construction, it was like, what else can you be doing outside of those areas to enable the works to carry on? That was really good for our relationships with the construction teams and meant that over the long term we sort of proved ourselves and they proved themselves, and we ended up being able to work together as a team a lot more cohesively, I think, than mm. what's normally the case.
0: Yeah. And I remember you, Darren, telling me that the construction workers got so, I guess, comfortable with you and with this different environment that they'd actually call you and say something doesn't feel right.
1: Yep, yeah, we had quite a few calls north and south of the township where there was, for want of a better term, just a bad vibe. The wairua, there was something out of balance and machinery was breaking down, staff weren't comfortable when they were working in specific areas. And so they would call us and we'd go down there for karakia and everybody would stop working. And we would walk backwards and forwards and do our karakia and have karakia. And that seemed to satisfy them. And in actual fact, we never had to go back to a place twice. For us, we knew that was the right thing to do because what's important, we knew certain areas and although they may be working on the road, the areas that they're in have significance to us. Mm. They are tapu, mm. So it may not be the actual road, but the area around it. And if it was an area like that that we knew about, we'd certainly go, well, in any case, we went down. We had karakia and everybody was pulled in. Traffic management was pulled in. <laughs> I got it, traffic management (laughs) management was pulled in, management was pulled in, and the crew working, whether they were the AB sailors, whether they were the uh, railway workers,
0: yeah. Mm. 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 It's such an amazing story because they really took on board Mm. and grew to respect the...
1: Look, I think there's always room for improvement. Some things could have been done better, of course. But really, I suppose the question, I thought about it when you mentioned it, why did it work so well? That's because we insisted that it worked well. From a Runanga point of view, we knew what we were talking about. We knew what we wanted. And again, with the archaeologists, they were open to that and really accepting and thinking, "Okay, we're going to listen to you guys. And in fact, having the archaeologists advocate on our behalf, if we weren't present, hold on, this needs to happen. And really, Nectar didn't have a choice. And that's not being dismissive because they had to engage us because we're mana whenua. We knew our coastline. We know that we have been occupying it for hundreds and hundreds of years. We knew what they were going to find. Again, our historic knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is so good that it did have to happen, but I remember you talking about how when the railway went through, it didn't happen.
1: There's a bit of history that we can only improve on.
0: Yeah, OK. We have a section called Digging Deep, which is where we look at something at a bit of depth that perhaps people wouldn't think of connected with archaeology. And Darren, I was wondering if you would mind talking about the Whare Tonga. you've already mentioned mm. it, but if you could describe what this is, what it means for your runanga.
1: Okay, well, Whare Tonga means a lot for Te Runanga or Kaikoura. It also actually means a lot nationally. There are a lot of lessons learned that came out of the Netta project, and there are a lot of things I'm hoping in the future will go to other parts of the country. As the authority holder, Waka had a responsibility around the Tonga Tuturu. And I remember in one person asking the question, Oh, what exactly are we doing with the material? And I just said, You're giving it back to us. And that person looked at me and went, Yes, of course we are. <laughs> and so from that, we had 346 Tonga Tuturu, and we had a ceremony where, again, through Gene Spinks's management of the Tonga Tuturu, In her space, we boxed up the taonga and we walked it on to Takahanga Marae and we presented it back to the whanau. And from that, I knew that I had to develop a plan in which, how do we care and protect that taonga. We had three buildings that had seen better days that were on the marae. So I procured those buildings from the PA trustees and I sought funding both Kiwi Rails and Waka Kotahi come to the party and they gave us a significant amount of money to refurbish three buildings because they were in a bad state. And then we also went and applied into the Naitahu Fund and we were successful in the Naitahu Tahu Fund as well. And so we ended up with the central building being a Tonga, which is basically the size of a small railway workers cottage. And on the other side, we had a Skyline garage which used to house our whalebone collection and we turned that into where the other part of the collection was, which is all our pollen samples, soil samples, bird bone, fish bone, to to And then we procured a third building, the same size as the Faritonga, and that's now our research space. Mm. It has a wet area, and it has tables, and it's set up for future study on the collection, and/or archaeologists coming to the region to work in Kaikōta. They've got somewhere to work from. Mm. The whole purpose of this is because it's Marae-based. And if an archaeologist is coming to work in Kaikoura, they work from the marae. So there's a direct connection. Because I recognised that that was a real risk about taking stuff away. Mm. Mm. So the Whare Taonga came out of recognising that collection had to have a home. The most important thing about the Whare Taonga and the collection is we had all these artefacts that were made by our tūpuna and it was a direct connection for us. Mm. It means that they could walk into a room and in some cases put their hand on adzes and large pieces of work pounamu that their ancestors had worked. And that was that direct connection. And that's why it was important that we had the paritanga on the path. Mm.
0: Thank you so much to both of you for your incredible knowledge and for this wonderful story that you've shared with us. I really hope that the learnings from the Nectar Project can be carried over into other massive construction projects and I'm particularly thinking of all the work that is to be done in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle in the North Island. Aotearoa Unearthed is a production of the New Zealand Archaeological Association and Heritage New Zealand Pauheri Tonga if you've enjoyed this show, share it round with other people interested in archaeology or New Zealand history and have a listen to our previous episodes. Ka kite.